Marvel A. Ortega, author of Ghost Squad and Witchlings. And I'm Kat Cho, author of the Gumiho Duology and Once Upon a K-Prom. And this is Ride or Die. All the right. real reason the Ride or Die is ending is because our books were going to start not fitting in the in the intro. <laughs> <laughs> the real reason is that like we're tired of like having to list out every single new project now. <laughs> No, what a bratty I reason. I sat here and was like, I'm Clarabelle Irtega, author of Ghost Squad and uh, Witchlings and Frizzy, and <laughs> we just keep going. Yeah, we should, well, actually, you know, for every episode, we should change what we say we're authors of. That's too confusing. That's too confusing? Okay, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought it would be interesting. It would be, but I'm going to get lost. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway... I, we don't usually reference the person we're going to interview when we do a pre-chat, but we came up with this pre-chat idea because of the person we're interviewing mm-hmm. today, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we're interviewing... Clarabelle and I, if you guys don't, you know, rampantly follow us on all social media platforms, how, how dare, dare you? you? <laughs> um, we, we love mentorship programs. Um, and we... Well, we both tried to be mentees before and got rejected yeah (laughs) but because we do love the idea of mentorship and paying it forward and helping pull other people up the ladder especially other marginalized people once we did become agented we wanted to share our expertise but we hate doing it alone so we (laughs) (laughs) co-mentor very often (laughs) yeah um but one of our mentees is our guest today so it's very special and exciting um, and we thought we would talk about mentorship programs, right, Clarabelle? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a, it's a topic that's like really interesting to authors. Cause I see a lot of new people like, I, how do I get a mentor? Like, mm-hmm. like, can you mentor me? Like sort of, and, and that works for some people. Right. But I feel like it's very hard once you, um, are sort of an established author or you have like a very busy schedule to sort of just like off the cuff, like bring somebody in, um, and also it depends on like who the author is because like some people have had bad experiences so they mm-hmm. prefer something more structured where like you apply and there's like a process and that's what we've done but I've also informally mentored people mm-hmm. a lot. Um, it, it just sort of like has happened naturally but we are a part of DV debut now. Mm-hmm. Basically it's uh, they, they, they pair up um, authors who ha- who've had one or two books out with authors who are in their debut year and it's really cool because we have an international author and like she was really concerned about like breaking into the U.S. market and there were a lot of things we had to explain about how it differs from the U.K. market and it was like really interesting and, and cool to to do but I, I think it's if you have the time to do it I definitely recommend it it's mm-hmm. it's I don't want to say it's the right thing to do. <laughs> it's fulfilling. Um, it's fulfilling. Yeah. It's, it's not like donating a kidney fulfilling, I guess. <laughs> Clarabelle, but... no, we don't reference. <laughs> we're not referencing that. I, that I doesn't exist in the happy world of write or die. <laughs> yeah, well, I had to reference it at least once. Anyway. Um, fine. <laughs> but but I've, I found it personally very fulfilling, especially there is no better feeling than like mentoring someone and then watching their career take off oh yes it is so nice and and the thing is too is that like 
uh, even for the, the mentors, it gives like a sense of community. Like, I think that every single author, no matter what stage we are in our author career, we do have these down times where we feel kind of lonely or alone, especially these days, right? Um, because we're all so isolated. I actually watched the launch event for um, Janelle Angelis's second book, um, One Night Breaks. And she was in conversation with Susan Dennard. And so Janella is like, you know, sophomore author. And Susan Dennard is like, you know, experienced New York Times bestselling, you know, all of this. Like she has a huge following of people who love her writing advice, kind of an author. And even Susan was saying like, she feels lonely sometimes. And like, she feels sad. And she feels like she doesn't know what she's doing. And, and it just like, you know, I think that just because an author looks like they're successful on the outside doesn't mean that we don't have the same insecurities on the inside. Mm. And so it is really nice for the mentors as well to have this connection with another writer and to like build this like one-on-one relationship, uh, which I think, you know, in a lot of ways we're losing um, the opportunities to make really meaningful one-on-one relationships when we're when we're becoming too dependent on the internet uh, for our community, um, which again, I do think is because of the times we're in. But, you know, saying something on Twitter and having like 100 people reply to you is a great feeling. It's really nice. It does show you that there's others like you out there, but it doesn't give you that one-on-one interaction yeah, that I do not. think feels so different and it it um, fulfills a very different need in us. So Yeah. For sure. I agree with that. And also, like, there are things that people are still unwilling to talk about publicly for Mm -hmm. good reason, because you can get in, quote unquote, trouble in publishing or things that like people just don't really share publicly because it could lead to drama. Right. And it's hard because there are things that when you are in the industry, you know, because you hear behind the scenes. But when you're new, you don't know any of that stuff. Mm hmm. And having a mentor, having somebody who's, like, around to be like, Mm-mm, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> stop, stop right there. <laughs> like, it could be so helpful. Just, like, that bit of information that I feel like we sometimes even probably take for granted because, like, we know these things, right? Yeah. But, um, But not everybody does. And it could be the difference between sort of, like, doing well in your career and like having like a really rough time depending on what that information is or if it's like an agent or a publisher or whatever um it may be uh so so it's useful in in that sense to having someone who can like sort of guide you um and let you know like when there are red flags that you might not be able to identify um on your own yes for sure for sure and So, yeah, for all of the reasons that we expressed, mentorship programs are really great. And there's different kinds, obviously. So Mm -hmm. for anyone who doesn't know all the different kinds of mentorship programs, um, generally, the two big ones is like a open-ended kind of a mentorship where it's Mm -hmm. like just guiding you through the writing process and publishing and things like that include author mentor match. Um, there's we need diverse books has a mentorship program for diverse voices and now um, diverse voices incorporated, which runs DV pit and DV con. We have the um, DV mentor. So um, 
that then there are mentorship programs that have kind of like a showcase or something mm-hmm. to like work towards. And while DV Mentor doesn't have an official showcase, it is built around the fact that DV Pit happens at the end, close to the end of the year. Um, but the big, big one that everyone knows about with a showcase is obviously Pitch Wars. Right. Um, and so, you know, DV Debut is a newer kind of mentorship. Not that there aren't mentorship programs or people willing to mentor debut authors. Um, but what we really wanted to do at DV, at Diverse Voices, over at Diverse Voices Incorporated, we're working on a lot of things for you. Um, sorry, I just like really said it like a commercial just then. But what we really wanted to acknowledge was that there does seem to be a drop off of support for people once you get past a certain quote unquote milestone. Yeah. And oftentimes after you get an agent and after you get your first book deal, People are like, you're fine now. Go off into the wild. But it's like, uh, no, there's still so much stuff that these people don't know. Like they need some onboarding into the industry, into this new career <laughs> that they are starting. So like, let's support them with that. Um, and that's why DV Debut was started. But yeah, like Clarabelle was saying, there's a lot of people who would who do informally, you know, take authors under their wings. It's just I don't we like. It's kind of like you have to make the connection first. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want a more formal program and you're a diverse voice, then we are going to try to run DV debut as a yearly thing. Yeah, it's um, I think it, it can be so helpful, especially for marginalized authors. Everything can feel so scary and big. And um, and like Kat said, like even for things that are a specific time frame sometimes the mentor mentee relationship continues or like mm-hmm. flourishes into a friendship sometimes like you just never know where it's going to go really um yeah but i think once you like sort of become part of the community sometimes that can just like also happen naturally like i've never had anybody say like well you'll be my mentor in my dms <laughs> Um, but it's sort of happened with like younger writers who I've become friends with for other reasons, yeah. and then I sort of help navigate them through through things. And honestly, I've learned from them as well. I think like one of the things we don't talk about enough in the mentor mentee relationship is that it's a two way street. Like it's mm-hmm. not just the mentor always like teaching things to the, this person who is newer. You learn from one another a lot of times, and I think that makes it really special and cool. Um, because you're always learning in this industry. There's always things changing. There's always something that you won't know until you get to a certain step, right? Um, mm-hmm. So so it can be very fulfilling. And I have had friendships bloom from mentorship programs too, mm-hmm. which is also like an added bonus. <laughs> um, but yeah, if it's, if it's something that if you're like a, an author who's like, established and wants to help others like definitely look into the programs because it it, it makes a huge difference for the people who are looking to be mentored as well yeah for sure and and so for anyone also who like because there's only so many mentorship programs so there's only so many slots out there so um there's so I don't have a formal mentor like Claire like I was saying before Clarabelle and I mm-hmm. both did try to get formal mentors before we both <laughs> did not get accepted nobody into wanted programs. us <laughs> um but 
I do have authors who I do consider kind of like as informal mentors and the ways that I met them for like anyone who like is like, well, what other ways other than applying to a program are there? So for me, one way that I made not only like informal mentors, but like just regular friends, you know, mm-hmm. amongst other authors or or not everyone's your friend, but at least friendly acquaintances where like if I saw them at a festival, we could hang out and like have a coffee, you know, Um which is invaluable, honestly, at yeah. festivals. Um, one was that uh, my agent said that they had, oh, like, would would my clients want to have, like, a space where they can connect with each other? If you do, then I will connect you all. Like, if you're willing for me mm-hmm. to start an email thread. And so everyone who emailed her back was like, sure. Um, she started an email thread for us. And then we started a Slack channel. And so that was and that was nice because we had something in common already. Like we all chose the same agent. So we all wanted probably some similar overlap of things from our careers Um, or just, you know, wrote, you know, things that like had some kind of overlap because the same person wanted to represent all of us. Um, So that was really nice. And it was a natural group to make. And then again, another natural group to make was that I've met a lot of authors through my editor. Mm -hmm. Um, there was one, I mean, like my, first of all, like uh, my editor is super cool and amazing and she's edited some amazing authors. So like I was already really lucky because she edited authors that I looked up to like Tracy Chi and Renee Adia. So like I was lucky to begin with, but like I was never going to be like, well, you introduced me to Tracy and Renee. I was never going (laughs) to do that to Stacey because, you know, that's not her job, but naturally, there were moments where like I was in a festival, so was Stacy and so was Renee. So Stacy was like, let me take you two out to lunch. And then I got to know Renee and then she gave me some advice and like has informally helped me out. Um, you know, she blurred my book and the same with Tracy. Like, you know, I she was like, hey, you know, it's great that we have the same editor. Let me know if you have any questions. And I was like, I do have a question about X, Y, Z thing. And then, you know, we just started up a conversation in a and a friendly acquaintance and And so that's another way to kind of make connections like your editor sibs, your agent sibs, Mm -hmm. even if you're just under the same imprint because you might have the same publicist, you know, that kind of stuff. Like it's just a way to maybe open the door. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's that's very, very smart advice. Um, It can be like sort of like a safe, like little group of people that you can maybe make friends with and Mm -hmm. have like the agent as the go-between or editor as the go-between um I've I've never really made friends with like my editor sibs to be quite honest but Mm -hmm. I have made friends with people at my agency Mm -hmm. um because like for example last weekend we had like a dinner and drinks for new leaf people right and it was like mostly people that I already knew but some people that I had never met before yeah um and I got to hang out with like Loba Bright which is really nice (laughs) (laughs) if you're listening i love you yeah i mean but that's so cool carbell because like i think that it's nice to kind of hear just even in just casual dinner conversation like how's your writing going like i really Mm -hmm. respect you oh you go through that too that's so great to just hear you say out loud in this informal setting Mm -hmm. you know and and i definitely want to stress the fact that like no one owes anyone friendship so please do not try to push these connections with other people just because you share an agent or an editor or someone doesn't mean that they owe you their time 
all we're saying is that you know if you want to if you're in a situation where it feels natural to be like hey we have the same agent like it's so nice to meet you and start a conversation that's usually fine um Mm -hmm. and you know and they'll let you and they'll give you the signal of like oh yeah let's keep talking or like i'm so sorry i'm busy right now um which is also fine (laughs) um so yeah it's just a way to kind of feel people out in a natural way instead of the awkwardness of slipping into dms which i know is really hard and it's really hard to know when is it the right time and is it okay to do and and all that stuff like i totally get the anxiety of that (laughs) yeah for sure it's um it's it's not easy it can be scary it gets easier though and i feel like once we start also having in-person events hopefully that will help people um find people to connect with who could possibly be mentored down the line um but never be afraid to sort of even ask for the opportunities to be like does anyone know of any mentorship programs because like we've Mm -hmm. listed some but i'm sure that there's others that we don't know about you know Mm -hmm. um so it doesn't it never hurts to like ask about it and to research and to apply for stuff and Sometimes you apply for stuff and you don't get in and you still end up getting a mentor from it. That's what happened with me in Pitch Wars. Um, someone who got into Pitch Wars is an, um, an older author who had like been writing for a while and he sort of took me under his wing and became like a mentor to me, a writing mentor to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, sometimes you just have to put yourself in like the vicinity <laughs> and then it just happens, you know, Yeah, but you got to be in the room. <laughs> yeah. You got, you got to at least open the door and, yeah. and be present for sure. And be open to these opportunities, um, which, which is scary, but it can be so fulfilling and on both sides and so great. So yeah, we love mentorship programs. Yeah, they're awesome. Woohoo! <laughs> um, and yeah, we'll put in the show notes links to everything, all the mentorship programs that we've mentioned for sure. Um, just so that you guys can like go and check it out yourselves. Yeah, do it. Do it. Form community in a healthy Woo-hoo. way. In a healthy way. <laughs> Mentors, don't take advantage of your mentees. Oh my God, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> This week's guest is Maisie Chan. Maisie is a British-Chinese children's author from Birmingham. She loves dim sum, yoga, and traveling. She has written early readers for Hachette and Big Cat Collins and has a collection of myths and legends out with Scholastic. She is the author of Danny Chung Does Not Do Maths in UK, also known as Danny Chung Sums It Up in the US, and the Tiger Warrior chapter book series as M. Chan. She runs Bubble Tea Writers Network to support and encourage writers of East and Southeast Asian descent in the UK. She has a dog called Miko. Did I say that right? Miko? Yeah. Okay. And who has very big eyes and wakes up too early. (laughs) (laughs) And she has a large old school hip hop collection. She lives in Glasgow with her family. Yay. Hi, Maisie. We're so excited to have you here. We kind of, you know, let the secret out of the bag in our pre-chat that we know you through um, TV debut, that you are our mentee. Um, So we're so excited to have you on the podcast and talk about your amazing book. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to be on the podcast, to be honest. (laughs) I couldn't believe it when you asked me. I was like, oh my God. 
No, we're so we're so happy to like hear about your whole entire journey, um, especially because we do think it's really important to highlight stories that aren't U.S. centric. Um, ex- like we know that Kidlet Publishing kind of focuses on the U.S. market a lot. So we're always trying to find outside perspectives and POVs because Clarabelle and I don't know anything about it either. At um, all. Yeah. So, but to start us off, can you just tell us how you first fell in love with storytelling, how you got your agent, how you got your first book deal? Um, so, yeah, so you said like about storytelling, because um, I used to be a storyteller, so I used to dress up as a Chinese goddess, and I used to tell t- stories to children, like Chinese myths and legends, um, and that was probably about 14 years ago. Um, and it was kind of a side hustle. And um, I used to work as a trust fundraiser for charities. And my last, uh, one of my jobs as a trust fundraiser was with children who had liver disease, um, which, you know, I used to write these grants to try and raise money for them. And it was a sort of, it was kind of storytelling, you know, trying to get money for them. But um, I would write these kind of stories. So I think, I think my love of storytelling is you know happened from early on when my mum used to take me to the library um because a lot of authors sometimes they say oh, I grew up in a house full of books and that wasn't me we didn't have any books and I, I might have had two books in the house one was Cinderella and one might have been something else but um you know my mum used to take me to the local library and I used to just love going in there and choosing books and um and then I didn't know I wanted to be a writer. Again, another kind of writer cliche is that, oh, I, I've been writing stories since I was a kid, and that wasn't me. Um, I used to like drawing, uh, a bit like Danny Chung. And um, I didn't know I wanted to be a writer until my late 20s when I was in Taiwan. So I was trying to learn Mandarin in Taiwan, and I was trying to be more sort of Asian and Chinese because I'm adopted, and my parents are white, working class. Um, they were, they're not here anymore, but they were white working class foster parents. And, and so I kind of went on this um, journey to find my heritage, I guess, even though I wasn't Taiwanese, I wanted to learn Chinese. And, and that trip to Taiwan just sort of opened a lot of doors for me in terms of like my identity but also um my mum passed away while I was there I was going for two years but she passed away six months in and I remember I was 25 and someone asked me you know what do you want to do with your life and I I think because my mum had just passed away I was thinking about the meaning of life and I just blurted out I want to write books and I don't even know where that came from Hmm. It, it was just kind of this moment and I was like oh I I don't even know how to write a book. I have never done it. Um, And it was from that moment, uh, from then on, I knew that I had to be an author. I don't know, it's kind of like a a thing I had to do. It had to follow my dream. (laughs) Sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? But um, just from that that life-changing moment, it was like, I need to be an author. Um, And in my early 20s, I... I did American studies because I liked American things growing up, um, <laughs> like basketball and music and TV and film. And I really wanted to live in America, but because we didn't have a lot of money, I thought I'll do an American studies degree because you spend the third year in America. And so I went to UC Berkeley on my year abroad. And again, that that year just being on a 
you know, an Asian campus and being in California. And get, I did quite a lot of Asian American studies and African American studies. And then coming back to England, I was like, oh my God, there's there's nothing here. There's nothing like that. There's no Maxine Hong Kingston. There's no Amy Tan. And so that um, also spurred me on to become a writer and try and fill that spot. And it's taken such a long time, <laughs> you know, from my early 20s. I'm in my 40s now. And it's, yeah, British publishing. We, I feel it's yeah, it's quite far behind, like Kidlet, uh, especially diverse Kidlet. Um, but I'm happy to be part of the movement to change things. And there are there are not many books with British Chinese characters or British East Asian or Southeast Asian characters. So I feel that I'm making a change and doing something useful. Um, and I got my agent in 2018 and I now have a different agent. <laughs> so that process was um, me, I got onto a scheme, like a mentoring scheme for a year called Megaphone. And I'm now a mentor on Megaphone, but back then I was a mentee. And I got mentored for a whole year to write a children's novel, which I'd never done before. And that was just brilliant. I kind of understood a bit more about how to do it um kind of it was good for signposting so I learned about SCWI and stuff like that and I got an agent pretty soon after that scheme ended um and my first agent we were following each other on Twitter so she knew who I was and I I submitted to maybe six different agents um but this particular one she wrote back and asked for the full manuscript like 24 minutes after I'd sent the email uh, and was very enthusiastic and she signed me like 10 days later um, but she signed me for a teen novel um, which I'm currently rewriting as a middle grade because it just didn't feel right so I left that teen novel and I wrote Danny Chung as a uh, middle grade I think my voice actually suits middle grade um, and then I got the book deal a year later no I wrote Danny Chung a year later and got a book deal after that it was all quite quick to be honest mm. I know some people don't like to hear that um well I think it's only right that some marginalized authors get a quick journey yes <laughs> my friend actually was quicker so there was another writer on megaphone Danielle Joando mm. and her journey was actually much quicker like a year quicker than mine mm. um so yeah uh, and then Last year, while I was editing Danny Chung, my agent decided to leave, and now I have a new agent. Um, so that's been interesting. <laughs> so yeah, I've had two agents already. Um, so yeah. when your agent left, what was your kind of process of finding your new agent? So I had an email from the agency saying, that my agent was leaving and would I like to go with their other children's agent who was really happy to take me on board and I just said yes because um I yeah she had quite a good reputation anyway and also I was in the middle of editing Danny Chung mm-hmm. and I didn't want to spend my energy looking for someone else or you know just I just couldn't think about that sort of stuff right then I was like in the middle of my edits (laughs) so I was like yeah great I'll just stay and um, I think it was a good decision and I realized that publishing 
is a bit fickle and sometimes agents leave or they, they'll go and do something else. So um, I think it's just another, you know, so many authors have had more than one agent. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I don't think it's that uncommon. At all. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> We've had, I, th- we, I think probably a majority of our guests um, or, mm-hmm. or at least half have had um, yeah. agent, like more than one agent. I, I'm on my second agent. Um, I don't think it's weird at all. And I think it's really great. Thank you for sharing it because I feel like just a couple years ago, that was like almost taboo to talk about. And I feel like people do talk about it more um, now, but I think, I think it's still important to talk about a lot because especially newer writers like will make a very big deal of their first agent match. And it's a, it's a, it's a big accomplishment, but it's also not like the end of the world. If you have to go with someone else either, you know, sometimes that's just like the right business decision. Um, so, so thank you for sharing that. I think it always helps (laughs) to hear it. Like the more people we hear it from. And I think also in terms of personality I probably get on better with my second agent Mm. um just in terms of small talk and stuff like that and I think yeah because because you when you're a new or you know when you're looking for an agent everyone's telling you oh it's like a marriage and Mm -hmm. almost like they've got to be your best friend and that I don't think that's true at all like I think I also look at the agency what what um what links do the agency have? Um, what deals have they done? I don't know. I just I think that whole spiel about the marriage thing sometimes is a bit misleading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And marriages. But... Most of marriages break up, don't they? Oh, <laughs> press shots fired. Um, <laughs> well, well, yeah, and also it just adds to like that relationship being like a romantic relationship like romanticizing like having an agent a dream agent like making it all of these like things that are like tied to emotion rather than something that's tied to business decisions which is what it should be and like sometimes like you are with an agent for a long time you become friends with them like I've been with my agent over three years now like we are friends you know but that's happened over time and it hasn't been like the kind of situation where it's you know, I go into it like my dream agent stars in my eyes for Susie Townsend. It's like, who is going to do the best job for my career and who is going to make yep. sure that I am protected and I'm not taken advantage of. Um, and that's what matters the most. And someone you can feel comfortable with too, right? Because it's, it's different for, for every writer. Like some agents are very like, just business nothing else some agents are like more encouraging will give you those pep talks and sometimes it takes like a couple trials to realize what you need right yeah I think that's true I think um I think there should be more talk about that and that people and sometimes people are dropped by agents if they can't sell your first book Mm. I've known people that their agents have then dropped them like friends of mine and so that's kind of like, oh, you feel really awkward, actually. You know, if you've got the same agent and they drop your friend, it's like you feel really bad. Mm. It's just like this horrible kind of feeling. But it is a business. And and I think part of me was a bit um, not ruthless. But I always think of when there's an agent that's just by themselves 
what if they're ill? I, I don't know if it's morbid or something, but I was like, what if they're ill or something, if it's just them? So I, I wanted to be with an agency where there was like other agents as well. Right. Well, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, even if there's not like a sickness involved, but like there's a lack of support there, right? Like when there's just an agent, they won't have like an assistant or like someone who's going to handle contracts. They do everything themselves. Sometimes they'll have like co-agents, um, but yeah, that totally makes sense. Like if you have an agency that has like a whole department that handles something, then it's a lot less likely that A, things are going to fall through the cracks and B, that your agent is going to be overwhelmed at all times. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that makes perfect sense to me. Um, yeah. And, and it's a consideration, you know, it's definitely a consideration that uh, authors need to think about when they're signing with somebody. Yeah, I had a friend and she's got an American agent. She's in the UK, but her agent's in the US. And her, her agent's mother was ill for quite a while. Mm. So she wasn't really agenting. So I was like, hmm, yeah, something to think about if it's just one person. Yeah. And that's not to say that like single But they person, can be great. Too. Right. Yeah. The, great agents that have got their own agents. For sure. For sure. It's a it's definitely a case by case basis. But that's something that you can ask about. Like if you get an offer from an agent that's like the sole agent at the agency, like how do you handle contracts, for example? Like what happens if you have a baby? <laughs> like yeah. all of these mm -hmm. questions that come up, like who's going to handle um, all of these things if you cannot? Um which mm -hmm. is a smart thing to sort of like have in mind. Definitely. Definitely. And so, Maisie, your agent is, remind me, they're based in the UK, correct? Yeah. So uh, my agency is the Madeline Milburn Literary TV and Film Agency. And they've got authors like Holly Bourne and Gail Honeyman. So she, she wrote um, Eleanor Oliphant is Completely mm -hmm. Fine, that bestseller one. And that kind of drew me to, I really like the book. So I was like drawn to that agency. And it's the kind of boutique London agency. Um, and Madeline won Agent of the Year. And my agent who works there is a children and YA agent, Chloe Seeger. And she's also an author. She's a YA author. She kind of writes romance. And I haven't read her books, but one day I will. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I think that this is a, such a un unique perspective, um, and I'm not sure if we actually have ever had this on on Write or Die, or or at least I haven't really open like talked about it in depth. But I know that we've discussed like what ha you know what you went through of like how your agent chose to submit your book and how it's you know sold to one publisher in the UK and a different publisher in the US and and so I would love to hear like you know the process that went behind that of like cho who you chose to submit to and then breaking into the US market so I was quite um green I guess so I just let my agent deal with the whole submission process mm -hmm. and she basically emailed 40 different editors so I think um, maybe half in the US and half in in Britain at, at the same time and mm -hmm. this was like the summer of 2019 so she sent them all um, my draft of Danny Chung which was at the time was called lychees and bingo balls and, <laughs> which is really cute but it was yeah. more to do with the grandma character and uh -huh. not Danny okay so they wanted kind of Danny center stage um, so one of the chapters is called that and um and I 
I was hoping it was going to get a US book deal just because of the amount of Asian American readers and, Mm -hmm. you know, the kid lit over there. I wanted it to be part of that sort of canon, I guess. And um, I I felt really that no one in Britain would want to read it. I think because there hadn't been a middle grade book like it before, which sounds, you know, it's 2021, Mm -hmm. but there hadn't been a British Chinese middle grade book by a British Chinese author at all so I just felt oh there hasn't been one then that means no one wants to read it and so part of me was just like no one's gonna buy this are they it was submission was just horrible I hated the whole two it was two weeks basically and I was on submission for two weeks um and my agent actually went on holiday (laughs) okay (laughs) Yeah, and then, so my current agent now was dealing with it, which is weird, serendipity, Um, and she phoned me and said, um, we've had had an offer from Piccadilly Press in the UK, um, and other other editors liked it, but they couldn't get it through acquisitions, so there's that whole thing about, you Mm, know, mm -hmm. they can't, maybe can't sell me, or I'm not marketable, maybe, I don't know, um, and so I had one offer here. I think one of the, um, yeah, one of the editor didn't like the rights being offered or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then about two weeks after I had the British book deal, which was a two book deal, Abrams offered, and I think Penguin were interested, but they wanted me to set it in America, something like that. Uh, um, but we went with Abrams. And so the US editor and the British editor worked together um, on the book with the with the UK one leading which I didn't really know about that what was the thing um, <laughs> and actually they got on quite well apart from the title and the illustrator mm-hmm. so that's why there's there's one story but it's got two titles and two illustrators just for the different market so I think um, Danny Chung does not do maths I think the, the US didn't want that does not do maths because it sounds a bit negative but it's kind of like British humour, like Sam mm. is not, not afraid of Sam is not afraid of sharks, or you know, it's that kind of <laughs> negative. They yes. didn't want that, and so they picked Danny Chung sums it up because it's kind of got a math connotation. We also um, don't say um, maths here. Oh yeah, with oh, an S. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just one math here, just one math, <laughs> and it's wrong. <laughs> And actually, the book didn't have any math or drawing in it in the first draft. It was just about Danny and his grandma. Um, And I think the math came in the fourth draft and the drawing came in the second draft. So that's kind of now it's like that's part of the whole sort of concept. And, you know, what's talked about is the maths and the drawing. And actually, that wasn't in the first draft. So that's funny. Um, and we're yeah, I'm writing book two, and I'm hoping that they pick the same title because it's been quite difficult. <laughs> well, you sometimes yeah, I say the wrong title yeah. when I'm talking in certain interviews, and then um, somebody, a parent, bought both copies because because they thought Danny Chung sums it up was a sequel, and it's not. It's the oh, same no. story, so she was disappointed. So I hope that we have the same title for both um, the US and the UK version of book two which mm. i'm working on now so yeah you should let them know that that you want that enough, yeah okay good <laughs> mentor hat on let them know it's such an interesting um 
thing to think about when you do sell to two different very strong markets at, at kind of the same time. Um, and I want like because I, I do know a lot of people who sold, you know, who are U.S. based authors with U.S. based agents and they sold U.S. rights first, North American rights, and then yeah. and then U.K. rights afterwards. Um and and there's definitely kind of like a different experience that they have with their UK houses than they do with the US house. But this different title th- situation is the first time I've ever heard of this happening. Um, really? <laughs> yeah, it, it does seem like the logic behind it does make sense, especially when you explain about like British humor and everything. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if like, I wonder if because it sold to the to your UK house first that they had more power to be like, well, we're just going to keep the UK title instead of having to kowtow to the US market, which I do think sometimes happens. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard other stories of um, US, US and UK editors sometimes not even wanting the story to go in a certain way if they're sold at the same oh, wow. time. Oh, no. um, yeah, I know someone that's happened to. So um, I think I also was just like, because it's my first book, yeah, do what you want sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> that grateful thing. Yeah, you know what you're doing. You just oh. go and do it. Yeah, <laughs> which we've told you, like, you belong here. So you get to, like, push for what you want. <laughs> this whole, yeah. like, the publishing, like, has loves to get, like, um, spread the false narrative that we need to be grateful for any crumbs that we get, especially as authors of color. And that's total BS. For Luceli Luna, ghosts are more than just the family business. Shortly before Halloween, Luceli and her best friend Sid cast a spell that accidentally awakens malicious spirits wreaking havoc throughout St. Augustine. Together, they must join forces with Sid's witch grandmother Babette and her tubby tabby chunk to fight the haunting head-on and reverse the curse to save the town and Lucelli's firefly spirit before it's too late. With the family dynamics of Coco, an action-packed adventure of Ghostbusters, Clarabel A. Ortega delivers both a thrillingly spooky and delightfully sweet debut novel with Ghost Squad. Order today at buyghostsquad.com. So I would love to actually kind of hear more about your perspective about kid lit in the UK just because you know we've had conversations where I'm always fascinated from your perspective of it and you already kind of mentioned that it's it is different than the US Um, we're very openly talking about we need diverse books and we have so many like really hard discussions um, over here about it Um, how is it over in the UK in the kid lit market um it's I mean everyone's very nice um and it's very jolly (laughs) (laughs) so um so I read Ghost Boys last year by Jill Parker Rhodes Mm -hmm. and I was just blown away by it just the whole experience of reading that and I was thinking it's very difficult it would be very difficult for a British black person to write a book like that about British black experience for that age group, mm-hmm. like you know, upper middle grade, because I think I still feel like over here it's still very new 
having mm-hmm. conversations about Black Lives Matter or race. And and so it's still very nicey-nicey almost, but they will buy US books that have done well that talk about those things. Mm-hmm. But if we wanted to write something quite hard-nosed about race like Ghost Boys, I think it would... Maybe now, actually, after Black Lives Matter in 2020, it would it might find a publisher. But I just feel like there's a lot more sort of choice in America. And as I said, there there has literally been less than you know I can count on my hands the amount of East Asian or Southeast Asian books that are for middle grade by authors that live here. I mean, it's just poor, really poor. Um, and I think they also think that there's everyone that looks like me is British Chinese. So mm. um, I've met some authors that are Korean American, like that live here. Mm-hmm. Um, but she she might struggle to sell her book here. Mm. It might be easier for her to sell it in America, because I think just the mindset is that everyone is Chinese. Uh, because a lot of the population that settled here were from Hong Kong originally, uh, British Chinese people. But that has changed so much. So, you know, there's a large Vietnamese community. There are Korean people here. There are Japanese people here. But not it's not as populated as America. You know, there's no Koreatown or Japantown or anything like that. Um, so I think that has to change. And I think with Bubble Tea, I'm trying to... That's one of the kind of things I'm trying to say to publishers is that not everyone is British Chinese, they're Filipino people, you know, that kind of, they think yeah. everyone is the same and they're not. Um, and then also I think there's still that tokenism thing going on where, because I get offered lots of work rather than them trying to find lots of other British Chinese people or East Asian writers, ah. they'll just try and get me to do it. Okay. <laughs> so Turn down. Yeah, they kind of offer the work then to the people they know. Um, and I think they need to start just widening the net a bit wider. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I used to get emails going, oh, you know, um, they're trying to increase the amount of British Chinese writers. And everybody would send me the opportunity because that I was one of the few people that was kind of visible on Twitter and stuff like that. And so... I think there has to be more conversations about... So, yeah, last month we had a panel, the first panel that I've ever seen or been on with British East Asian and Southeast Asian kid lit writers and illustrators in the UK. Um, and so I think hopefully things are going to change. And we do look to America. We look we look over there and we, we, we kind of look with awe and jealousy... <laughs> Your oh my gosh <laughs> we're so messy though please That's do not so emulate everything we do we're such a but, mess but you know what i understand what you mean because like when i've i've spoken at the london book fair before and like some of the things that i've seen like people say on panels in london in regards to kidlet it would be a five-day controversy at minimum on u.s like kidlet twitter if that <laughs> happened here like in terms of just the conversations being had um, it just felt like 2010, basically, like mm-hmm. conversations that we had years ago um, and things that like wouldn't fly in terms of like what people are saying 
Um, and that was not every panel, of course, but there were like a couple where it was like that. And there were like chuckles from the crowd. Um, but there were people also that I saw like getting visibly upset. Um, so it's not like everyone's just fine with it. Like people are still upset about it, uh, uh, like understandably so. But I understand what you mean in terms of like the conversation not being as evolved, even though we're fighting like all the time. We have mm -hmm. we have had the, the like the one on one conversations and we've been through that sort of like struggle where um, and we have seen change, even if it's like slow moving. But but that's just proof, right? If people are looking to us like, <laughs> like, and like with envy, like I feel like you, to if you told anybody that in Kidla, they'd be like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'd be like, "Why?" I'm not just, I'm not just in Kidla. I mean, just in terms of like Asian American studies, African American studies, yeah. ethnic uh -huh. studies. You've had those since the '60s, and we haven't. We've just had the first Black British studies in the last five years, wow. and there's oh, one wow. university doing that. Um, people still use the word oriental. I mean, oh. during last year's hate crimes statistics, the police were using oriental to oh, um, tally how many Asian, you know, East Asians are having hate crimes. So, oh, okay. so then we're, it's it's not just like kidlit, it's like the wider society and how you can, people within the community still use those terms. Mm -hmm, yeah. So, and they don't understand that, why it's derogatory or outdated and so when you're trying to write books that are modern and hopeful and and a teeth that their stories i mean mainly danny chung is a story about a boy and his grandma it doesn't matter what race he is but then there's a little things that i am trying to educate so danny says you know all chinese people aren't the same mm -hmm. and he tells his teacher you know oh i can't speak the same dialect as my grandma and he's the teacher's like oh but she speaks chinese and all chinese people are the same so there's just these little things that i'm putting in the book yeah just to say that we're not the same and these little tidbits that i'm hoping that children will pick up on but also yeah. adults because it's it's like the wider community it's not just um within publishing or it's just general yeah uk ignorance <laughs> yeah well i mean and i know like you know it's you know life imitates art art imitates life all of that stuff so you can't just talk about like what it's like to have these conversations in uk publishing without talking about what it's like to have the conversations in the uk in general but i do think like a great thing is that you know you know books and and our words have so much power to like help people see outside of their own perspective so like the fact that you're doing this in the kidlet space is going to have a lot of power and there's going to be ripple effects of it if only because like you're teaching the kids of today's generation and they'll grow up to be more well-rounded uh, because they had these mirrors and windows and so like when they're adults and they have authority in society they'll think twice before saying something like oriental um, which i think is is such an important thing of kidlet um, and it's why we take such a big responsibility um like we talk about it a lot about how like the reason why we're so so nitpicky about it in kitlet and and maybe people aren't as nitpicky about it in adult fiction is because like so often times diverse books in kitlet are kind of taught used as teaching tools whether we want them yeah. to or to be or not mm -hmm. you know yeah for so. sure yeah i think that's why i wanted to become a children's author because 
I didn't know when I started to write I used to write short stories for adults and I remember a librarian read a short story of mine and she said oh you've got a really good voice for like young adults or children's fiction um because it's kind of this chatty working class British voice I guess and (laughs) and so I was like oh yeah maybe you know I always wanted to have books in schools because you know, especially when you don't have any money, school is where you can get books as yeah. well, and you kind of have to read them. Your teacher gives it to you, you have to read it. Uh-huh. And so I read some books in, in high school um, about different... So there was one called Sour Sweet, which was by a Singaporean writer, Timothy Moe, and it was about um, a, a family, an immigrant family, I think they're from Hong Kong, that moved to Britain. There was, like, triads involved in a mystery, but um, mm-hmm. that was the first book I ever read at school that had anything to do with sort of British Chinese-ness or Chinese immigration. And then I didn't read anything until university, and that was the Joy Luck Club. And then there's hardly, you know, there hasn't been much since until recently. Um, But I feel there is a change. I feel publishers are signing more diverse people, um, just generally. And... In, in all categories, non-fiction. I know people that in, that are doing adult non-fiction from Bubble Tea and um, fiction. So it's changing slowly, and yeah. I would just love to see more For sure. East Asian and Southeast Asian kid lit in the UK because it's like sad. It's very sad, well, <laughs> and I think... it is that burden thing. You know that burden of representation. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great that you're talking about it, too, because, like, that's a big part of the battle, right? Like, I feel like if, like, you described, like, everything's very, like, sort of nicey-nicey. <laughs> um, if people aren't willing to sort of talk about things and confront them, like, that's hard. It's it's messy. Fights happen. But it's the only way to get to the other side of things and sort of start to foster mm-hmm. that change is to have those really hard conversations and it's also frustrating because it's like sometimes like I just want to write my books yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's this like incredible responsibility that we put on our own shoulders and that that is put on our shoulders to sort of carry these conversations and push them forward when we just want to write sometimes um so like I want to say like thanks for using your voice but also like I wish you didn't have to do it all the time I wish it mm-hmm. wasn't so exhausting you know yeah yeah uh, um yeah I think with with my debut being out I was writing quite a lot of articles about East Asian representation in Britain and I think as I go you know as I move forward in my career I think it will be more about stories and the craft and um, I've been asked to do a couple of writing for children workshops you know just creative writing where it's not really about being Chinese at all so that's been really nice and Mm -hmm. just being on some panels as well where it's not about representation it's just about oh tell me about your book and so that yeah that's really nice yeah speaking of tell me about your book we haven't actually talked about what uh, the Jenny Chung books are. Like we have sort of, but for people who who haven't read it yet or don't really know like the full synopsis, can you give us a, a sort of rundown of uh, Danny Chung sums it up slash Danny Chung does not do math and what it's all about? Yeah. So I'm going to sum it up just like Danny Chung. <laughs> <laughs> <So> Danny- <laughs> Chan sums it up. So he's 11. And he loves to draw, but his parents are kind of 
typical, a bit typical, a bit stereotypical, um, British Chinese parents, they want him to be academic and the, the novel begins with him getting a surprise and he gets a bunk bed and then that afternoon he gets a grandma as well. So it's a bit like Minari for children um, with like Alan Kim and so Danny's a bit like Alan Kim, he gets a grandma who's in his room, she's annoying him he can't speak her dialect because she's from a small village and she farts and smells and is noisy and snores. And it's just, you know, he's very British. He doesn't want a grandma in his bedroom. It's not cool. Um, and also he can't draw because his parents are sort of telling him don't draw. So he stealth draws. So that's the beginning of the book. And um, over the Easter break, he has to granny sit her, but he really wants to go and play with these cool kids at the park. So he is trying to look for an activity where he can kind of dump her and he dumps her at the bingo hall. Um, and he's he's got a best friend, Ravi, so there's kind of a thread about his best friend feeling betrayed. And then there's kind of another girl, Amelia Yee, who's got a tiger mom. Um, so there's kind of four different threads, but the main thread is about him and his grandma and how they communicate because she can't speak English and he can't speak Chinese. So he uses his art to communicate with her. So that's basically it. So it's I about love family. That, so much. <laughs> that is so, I love that so much. I really super love that. My grandmother came over from Dominican Republic when I was quite small to take care of me when my mom went back to work. Um, and it was an experience. I, spo I did speak Spanish, but um, it was still... There were a lot of things that we didn't understand each other about. Um, but I just love I I love grandmothers in books, period. If you've read any of my books, I always have a grandma in one of my books because I just I just love that relationship of like a, a grandparents with their um, grandchildren. I think it's very special. So that sounds yeah. incredibly adorable. And oh. everyone has to go buy their 20 prerequisite yeah. copies. And now you can buy 10 UK versions, 10 US versions. 10 US versions, yeah. Whatever I, your preference. I was going to say, like, I think there might be something to be said about the importance of grandmas in diaspora families mm. and in, like, families of color that live in the Western world because my, like my relationship with my grandparents is like kind of very integral to my relationship with my Korean roots. Um, in that, like, obviously they were, you know, they're very, very, very Korean. Like they came over to America from Korea when they were like full, full grown adults. Like my mom and my dad came over when they're kids. So, like, they adapted to American culture a little bit better. But my grandparents are very Korean. And my relationship with them feels really important in a way that it's hard to explain to someone who doesn't have, like, a home culture the way diaspora kids do. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, like, maybe there's some subconscious thing. Because I have, I have grandparents in my books a lot, too. So maybe there's something to be said about, like, us subconsciously including them because of how important they are to our cultures well mine's uh so it's based on my friend stella who's from hong kong and her grandma came to birmingham age 92 like she'd never left china and then mm -hmm. she suddenly moved across the world and she's living in stella's house in birmingham age 92 
And I just couldn't believe this woman, how, you know, smiley she was, how strong she was, and that she had, she had left, you know, all she had known. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't, couldn't believe it. And I, I had this thought, what would she do to make friends? And I thought, oh, she could play bingo because you only (laughs) need to know numbers. And that's the idea. That's where the initial idea for the story came from. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah. But I met my own, because I'm adopted, um, Uh I met my own grandmother. I think I was like 29, my Chinese grandmother. So it's a long story about how I met my birth parents, but they weren't far away. And I didn't know that I had a whole massive Chinese family within a few miles of where wow. I lived. Okay. And so when I was around 30, I went to stay with my grandmother, Wai Ping. And she couldn't speak, she could speak little bits of English, but not great. And I couldn't speak Cantonese. And so it was like pointing at stuff and she would like try and feed me and <laughs> couldn't talk, you know couldn't really talk to each other but it was just like she just wanted to feed me and love me because she hadn't seen me for all of these years yeah. and so that was really you know buy me coats and things um so that was nice so it's sort of based on her as well but also my mother-in-law who's Spanish she mm-hmm. can't really communicate with my kids but she's always over loving them. You know, one's got, had eczema, so she wanted to buy cream for him and feed him. Um, mm-hmm. She wanted to feed him creme caramels when he was six months old and that, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> so it's, it's based on these women that just want to, even though they might not be able to communicate with you, like fully, they just yeah. want to love you and feed you and like rub cream on you and buy you clothes and stuff. So it's kind of based on those kind of people. and. Mm-hmm. And just living in Taiwan, you know, I wanted to show that you can be friends with someone that can't speak the same language as you. Mm-hmm. Because I couldn't speak, you know, when I moved, I couldn't speak Mandarin. I would just point at things and point at pictures if I wanted to eat stuff. Um, but I made friends. And so I wanted to kind of, you know, in this time of Brexit and division, I wanted to show oh, yeah. that you can you can be friends and love people, you know, even if. You can't speak the same language. That was the main thing that I wanted to get across. I love that. that. Oh, love it. It's such a good message to give. It's so. It's such a beautiful message to give too. (laughs) So everyone who comes on Ride or Die tells us their most embarrassing publishing-related story or something they wish they'd known before they started. You could do either or. You could do both. It's up to you. My most embarrassing story was um going to the penguin summer party in london and i had like bright red lipstick all over my teeth <laughs> no yes i did um and i was trying to rub it off with tissue and stuff so that was really embarrassing and then i got a bit tipsy quite tipsy in fact and i was standing in line for vegetarian burritos and next to me was a guy with a really bright shirt on and i looked at his name badge and it was an illustrator called nick Sharat. And me and my daughter have read his books, you know, when she was growing up. And I went, oh, you're Nick Sherat? And just, like, fangirled him. And I was, like, really drunk. Really drunk. <laughs> and just, like, you know, just grinning, grinning at this guy. And I was just like, oh. And, yeah, and then I had lipstick all over my teeth. So that's probably my most embarrassing moment. I love it. Aww. <laughs> it's very cute. <laughs> I feel like... I feel like we need to be more on top of telling each other, like, you have food in your teeth, like, as author I always as author. Tell I always tell people. I'm like, listen, you'll thank me 
<laughs> you'll thank me later. Yeah. I know it's a little embarrassing the moment where I tell you that you have it, but you'll thank me later. <laughs> the other day, I was in the park with this mum. There was a group of mums, and she's a writer actually. And she had a spider in her hair. I didn't, I didn't tell her. Right. Oh. <laughs> oh my god! I was like, oh, she was talking, and I just can't. I can't stop the flow of her talking, so I just didn't tell her. <laughs> That's naughty, isn't it? I should have said something. Hopefully she's uh, not scared of spiders. Because, I mean, yeah. she could have freaked out if you told her also. Some mm-hmm. people are really afraid of them. And, like, yeah. it's very small, but still, it was on her yeah. fringe. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, oh, my gosh, on her bangs. So everyone was seeing it. It wasn't just you. <laughs> yeah, the other one didn't, didn't say anything either. So I was like, if she hasn't told her, maybe <laughs> I love this story personally. It's very chaotic. Oh my gosh, amazing! Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. Thanks for having me. It's been a dream. Yay! Can you tell everyone where they can find you on the internet? So I'm on Twitter at Maisie Writes and Instagram at Maisie Chan Writes and my webpage is www.maisychan.com. Or you can Google me. <laughs> we'll, we'll have it all in the show notes too. So people can, can just click on those links. They can check you out online, buy the prerequisite. 20 copies um and Maisie thank you again so much for being on the podcast thanks so much I love it thanks for listening to Write or Die be sure to check out Wicked Fox by Kat Cho and Ghost Squad by Clarabelle A. Ortega and while you're at it make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review see you next time wordies and don't forget to spread the word <laughs> <laughs>